Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. I'm so glad you're here. This is our final week with our No Shortcut series, where we've been looking at the temptations of Jesus. Um, We've been exploring how Jesus went out into the wilderness by the leading of the Holy Spirit to be tempted as a human being. And that's why this account is just so fascinating. It's gripping and it's so practical for us because all of us continuously face temptation. And if we discover how Jesus dealt with it, we can be more confident in how to meet temptation in our own lives. So when we were planning this series, I was drawn to this topic, and that's not like me, because who would want to talk about temptation, right? I mean, our first thought is like some sexual temptations or other kinds of addictions, Um, but temptations look like so many things. They often pop out of nowhere, such as when I stopped in for a quick errand at Hobby Lobby last week, and what do you think I found? Some of you may remember, I have been known to borrow baby Jesus, so I want you to be well aware, if a manger scene is in your yard, it's the season, the temptation is real. <laughs> I, 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 I may borrow him. Anyway, um, but my desire to think more about this topic was increased after listening to Phil Smith um, in August. Um, Phil's parents were the Manchester Vineyard pastors in the UK, and so Phil is now the pastor. But previously, he had been a pastor to various people in the music industry. He'd come alongside them when they were on tour. And one day at an event with other musicians, he walked into the wrong door into a private catering room, and he ended up having a half-hour conversation with a guy about the kingdom of God. Well, this guy ended up, was happened to be Jared Leto, um, you know, the actor, the musician. And, and the one thing that stood out to Phil from their conversation was Leto's comment. He goes, I have no problem with God. But it's his fan club I have issues with, right? And I know we've heard that before. People don't really have issues with God. It's with other Christians. But it really impressed me, and maybe just because it was Jared Leto that said it. I don't know. But the take-home that Phil Smith had from that conversation, that Jared had come into contact with immaturity, right? Immature Christians. And I get it. I know I've been immature, and I still struggle and can be. But something inside me gets stirred, because the longer that I walk with God the more aware I am of how beautiful and true and relevant he is and how much he loves people. And I get reinvigorated because I'm a part of a community here where God is rewriting his kingdom story in Columbus. And we are part of a community that wants to grow, that wants to be mature. Because honestly, why would any of you want to get up on a Sunday morning when you could sleep in or be outside, but you came here today to hear a message on temptation? I don't know, you've got to have a heart that wants to be a more mature reflection of who Jesus is. So learning how to navigate temptations is definitely on the checklist in becoming more mature. And now it's not that God ever tempts us. He says in his word that he doesn't. But he does use temptations to help shape and mature us. It's part of our spiritual formation. So before we jump into the scripture, I I wanted to point out how different the kind of transformation that God talks about and different from the world's focus on moral and behavioral change. You know, but I am grateful for the way that our culture encourages any kind of good character and morals. We see it in our schools and all sorts of things. The world would be an incredibly scary place without moral reformation. And I value how people are able to change their behavior, like leave alcohol and drugs and crime, through self-discipline, through accountability. 
It's great. Um, but living moral lives on our own efforts can only take us so far. And why? Because the focus is more on restraining our behaviors rather than changing our hearts. And with moral reform, it's the individual who decides how far to go in the changes that they're going to make. Whereas with spiritual transformation, God calls you to, he, he, um, he gives you the power to change, but you don't get to decide how far those changes are going to be. Because you have no idea when you sign up with Jesus where this process is going to take you, right? I love it when C.S. Lewis said that when most people invite Jesus into their life, they think it's going to be about moral reformation. He's going to help them change their behaviors. But this is similar to um, being a homeowner where you invite someone to come and do some repairs on your house. Like, I'd like a little painting here. Fix this cabinet over there. No, spiritual transformation is more like receiving power and having a bulldozer come in. <laughs> That's what we, we said yes to. <laughs> um, rather than restraining behavior, spiritual transformation's goal is that our hearts will be changed to such an extent that out of it we will see an increase in freedom of love, joy, peace, patience, generosity, um, courage, integrity, humility, and self-control. These are evidences of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's jump in now with the reading in the scripture. Ross has already focused on the first two temptations here in Matthew, and we're going to conclude with this final showdown between, between Jesus and Satan. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, Jesus said to him, Well, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, I've spent some time imagining what would it have been like to have been in the desert with Jesus for 40 days and have Satan come, to be there with no food. You know, it brings back images of nail-biting scenes, you know, when the main character is faced with that dilemma of falling into temptation, like going to the dark side, right? I mean, I grew up well, with the Star Wars, and even though I knew Anakin was going to fall and join the dark side, right, every time he tried to fight the darkness, I kept cheering him on, you can do this. I didn't care if it messed up the entire trajectory of the story for any of those previous movies that we had seen. Could he please choose... Um, you know, to, to choose a better way. On a less intense um, and not fictional struggle with temptation, I was also reminded this week of a showdown um, between a mom and her child in, like, I think it was like Target, that happened several years ago. Um, everyone, when, we got, when I came into the store, everybody could hear this incredibly loud and expressive demands of a young child. So amidst the screaming and the kicking on the floor, you could see this mom just trying to hold it together, trying hard not to give in to her child's demand, um, but was, and, and was also not wanting to gather all that attention either. And I just remember silently praying for her, like, stay strong, sweetie. 
you can do it. I know you can. You don't give in. Don't give in. And it was a long few minutes. This, the entire store was filled with the sounds of this child. I mean, it was like she had the lungs of an elephant or something. I don't know. But in the end, this mom did not cave. Like, she got her child out of the store and she was frazzled, but she didn't even lose her temper. I wanted to run out and give her a big bouquet of flowers and said, you rocked it, girl. Good job. You know, and I might be more sensitive to this topic because... It's easy to cave into the, your demands of your kid, right? You know, I remember being with one of my kids who's actually home for fall break. <laughs> and, um, um, but he was between two and three years old, and he had this innate desire to practice parkour at every store we ever went into. Those high shows at Target were, were a special interest to him. So each time we'd go in the store, we'd practice walking and not climbing, but inevitably he would lose his privilege to walk and he would have to sit in the cart. And one of those days... Well, um, I had him in a more private corner of the store. He was not happy about sitting in the cart, and he needed my help to stay in the cart. And along came a woman who came up to me and informed me that sometimes kids just need a little bit more loving. And then I, she started to move toward him like she was going to pick him up. And, um, and then I responded by you know, just moving in closer to him. And I gave her a look that I wanted to communicate at least two things. First of all, you have absolutely no idea how much I adore this child. And you had better back up and step away because Mama Bear has just been awoken, okay? Um, and she did leave quickly. I don't know what my eyes did, you know? And I understand her motive was, was probably caring, but her assumptions did not feel that way, right? So temptations come in many forms. How do we navigate them? How do we not take shortcuts for that feel-good in the moment, but we know they're going to have long-term consequences? So back to the showdown of the utmost importance for all of us, the showdown between Jesus and Satan. Satan has swung and missed twice in trying to tempt Jesus. So now Satan brings Jesus high in a mountain where he can see all the roads leading in from all the kingdoms on the earth and their glory. And the devil said to Jesus, You can have all of this if you will fall down and worship me. Now think of the force of that. I mean, these kingdoms were exactly what Jesus had come to get. He came to, in order to win the world, that he would be Lord of all, that he would be exalted to the highest position in the universe, and this is why he came. And the devil is now offering it to him. And Satan is giving a half lie here, because while it's true that Satan is the god of this world, of this world, it is not true that he owns it and he can give to whomever he wishes. I mean, Adam listened to, listened and fell before Satan because Adam, in, a, in an essence, gave up his power, his dominion to Satan. He forfeited the earth to Satan. So Satan took control of the earth, but it is not his to give away. However, if Jesus were to bow down to Satan, the title or deed to the earth truly would have passed to Satan. So there is a half-truth in there from him. But nevertheless, Satan boldly just offers to Jesus rulership of the earth. He is offering to Jesus an easy road to become this political, military, ruling sort of Messiah that most of the Jews in that day were expecting. But there was just one hitch, one little condition. He says, if you will worship me before, before, before me, all will be yours. That Greek word for worship means to literally bend the knee. So Satan is asking Jesus to bend the knee, for Satan knows that a day is coming for him, which he is not looking forward to. 
It's a day that when he will have to bend his knee before Jesus. And, but at this point, Satan is still trying to turn the tables on Jesus. He's trying to get what belongs to Christ alone. If Jesus bows to Satan, the whole universe would too. So if Jesus can stand firm for this temptation and this long road to the cross, he's going to win that victory, and it will look like Satan's worst nice nightmare. Paul describes it in Philippians when he says, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Satan knew that one of the reasons Jesus came to this earth was to get dominion back, to regain control of the world. And Satan didn't want to give up control, and he didn't want to bend his knee to Jesus, so he offers Jesus a shortcut to God's plan, a fast track to accomplishing God's will, an easy shortcut around the cross. And Satan loves to offer shortcuts. He always says, hey, here's what God's promised to give you, great job, good family, easy life. Um, But God's ways take too long. They require too much effort. I can give you these things right now if you will just worship me. Satan is the king of instant gratification. And the trick to his temptations of this sort is that he always offers us God's promises, but with a shortcut. I'll just give it to you now if you'll bow down and worship me. You know, you can get rid of all that pain, no suffering, no cross, if you bow down and worship me. You know, I had always thought that in this passage that Jesus was being asked by Satan to worship him from that point on forever. And I thought, oh, that would be easier to say no to. But in the original Greek tense, it actually communicates that Satan is asking Jesus to worship or bow his knee only in this immediate point of time. No no more ongoing ramifications. Satan is saying just this once. And it's a trick because Satan is the father of lies. He knows that if he can get Jesus to worship him once, he's got him. So how many of us can identify with that statement, just this once? Just this once, it's it's really enticing, and it promises so many things. Like it promises instant gratification without long-term consequences, right? It's a one-time shortcut, and then you go back to your family or your job or the grade, and the next time you're going to write your own paper, right? No harm, no fall. No one will ever know. Just this once also promises like, well, this isn't going to become a long-term pattern, It's not that dangerous or risky. It's not going to cost you much. You can just do it once and walk away and never be tempted again. Just this once, it also promises, like, it's just not that big a deal. It's just one time. It's not that meaningful, not that substantial. Think about the temptations that you fall prey to in your life on a regular basis that were just once, just this once kind of moments. Are there any consequences currently in your life that come from a just this once moment? For some, or maybe many of us, we're still wrestling from the consequences years later of a just-this-once moment. How many times has a just-this-once moment turned into a just-one-more-time? This will be the last time, I promise. And then it's over. I'm never going to do it again. The first one was free, but now it has its hooks in you. Or how about this? Did the people in your life who are adversely affected by your just-this-once moment think it wasn't that big of a deal? I have never met a wife whose husband has cheated on her and said, well, it was just that once, you know. It's not that big a deal. Temptation often looks good, and it looks like it has no cost, no strings attached, but it never, ever is. Satan has baited the hook, and he made it look really good, and he asked Jesus to worship worship him one time. So what do we see Jesus do? Gosh, he immediately sees through Satan lies. He doesn't miss a beat. He responds and almost with like a sense of contempt. 
He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. When, te- when temptation gets most severe, Jesus responds with what's in his heart. Like he was hungry, his stomach was empty, but his heart was so full of what he knew about God. I mean, he references, this is a reference that he uses from Deuteronomy 6.13. Who reads Deuteronomy 6.13? You know, he had that so deeply in his heart. We often say Jesus didn't face temptation like us. Well, he was God. He could walk away from it or overcome it anytime he liked. But the level of temptation that Jesus faced is greater than the level of temptation that you or I will ever face because Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And he chose to come to earth as a man and face things just like you and me. I love it when um, Hebrews says, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And that means there is no temptation that you and I ever face that he hasn't faced even more fully. So consequently, Jesus has a ton to offer us in terms of how to face temptations and how to win over it. Yet, I, the most common approach when dealing with temptation is what do we do? We do more of that moral reform approach that we mentioned earlier. Um, we use our sheer willpower to say no to temptation. So is that really Jesus' you know, method of dealing with temptation? Just say no? Um, what we see in Jesus' response is in every temptation we face and succumb to, it really is a worship issue. Now, we talk about worship a lot here but because it's so important. Because we all worship something. Whatever or whoever is the biggest focus in your life, that's what you worship. It could be your money, your spouse, your children, your position in your job. And whatever you worship is really your Lord. So the most fundamental step that we have to do when we're looking at temptation is who or what is really Lord to me. I am so impressed with Jesus and how he settled, had that issue so settled in himself. He was so utterly saturated in the word um, that he didn't even have to think, take a second to think about taking a shortcut to receive power and authority. What was so resolved in him that it came so instantaneously? I mean, I think a huge part was that he was just so marinated in the scripture. So when I was thinking about, like, what was Jesus doing in those 40 days in the desert, I was thinking, what part of the scriptures was he just soaking in and thinking about? And I imagine that he probably just thought and thought a lot about Psalm 23. It's one of our most famous passages, right? But I think because of the reflections on the valley of the shadow of death, it would have resonated for him. And so I know it's familiar, but I want us to read afresh and think about how Jesus may have sat with these words while he was in the desert. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look where the psalm begins. The Lord is my shepherd. He is Lord. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. That's important to remember, right? This psalm describes how to live in such a way that even when there's conflict or wars or darkness, we can come into breakthrough because he is Lord. So whenever we go through difficult times, temptations, we have to ask, like, who is Lord? And then it goes on to say, I shall not want. 
With our shepherd, shepherd, we will not lack anything we truly need. He restores my soul, my very being. And in times of temptation that can feel like walking through a valley of death, we know that God is building something deeper in us, a rest and a trust that increases our ability to believe in him. Because we fear what no evil, because he's with us. Bill Johnson, who's a pastor of Bethel Church in California, he believes and has seen incredible, incredible miracles of God, particularly physical healings. And yet he has also personally gone through some difficult health situations. And I liked his comments on this psalm because he was saying he, he, when he was in the hospital, he kept thinking and thinking about the psalm. He said, I came to a realization that there are some manifestations of his, God's presence, that are only found in the shadow of the valley of death. God shows himself different in different contexts. There are things that you can only, there are things that you only, you can only find in that context. And that's why we don't fear evil or darkness or various temptations because we walk with him. And it's in those times we discover more how good and how powerful he is. But we don't want to stay there, right? Who wants to stay in a dark valley? Johnson goes on to say, though, it's so important that the longest way through a trial, and I would say temptation, is to try to do it without the lordship of Jesus. It's definitely a long way without him. I love the metaphor of the table as the psalm continues. In the presence of my enemies, God prepares a table for me. The visual of a table is just, it communicates an invitation for connection and intimacy for relationship. And I love that it's prepared before my enemies. It's not like the enemies are not there, yet we're just not focused on them because who's with us? The Lord's there. He's at the table. He's invited us. And then it says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. I love that image of overflowing. Well, this, there's a picture. This happened last night um, after playing, I think, nine, nine uh, games of volleyball. Um, Derek's girlfriend, Kara, she, was, she loves chocolate. She could handle a fountain of chocolates, right? Um, so she, just imagine that whole concept of like a pouring and pouring, um, overflowing of chocolate or life that God is giving to us. So isn't she cute? She's so cute. Yeah, she is. But anyway, so um, but choosing to choosing God to be Lord in our life results in our lives being overflowing with this fountain of life. Jesus and the temptation and David in Psalm 23 both have settled and emphasized this lordship as the fundamental underlying issue. Therefore, when we have problems, we can see them not as a relationship problem, but more of a lordship kind of problem. When we're struggling financially, it's not just a financial problem, it's a lordship problem. So what does lordship look like in your life? How, my life, how does it help us to deal with temptation? Well, first, it leads us back to that focus on the difference between moral reformation and spiritual transformation. You do not need a lord to morally change. Because moral, moral reformation says, here are the rules, conform them to them. Restrain or control your heart. It doesn't talk about restraining um, your heart or changing your heart, it doesn't want to focus that. Um, it doesn't want to focus on changing that. But spiritual transformation is about a deep heart change. And so how does that look? Well, we always look to Jesus um, for an example, but I would admit the P- Apostle Paul would be the next one to look at. He is considered at least the fifth to sixth most in- influential person ever in history. So he has a lot to say about self-control and spiritual transformation. Because before choosing to follow Jesus, Paul was excellent at moral reformation. As a religious leader, he took great stock in his ability to control his flesh. He followed every religious law better than anyone else. 
And although a master at self-discipline, he realized the insufficiency of trying to live life on one's own efforts. He counted all that sheer willpower following those rules as a loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's spiritual transformation was not using sheer willpower to change his behavior, but growing in the fruit or evidence of the Holy Spirit that lived within him. And in particular, how the Holy Spirit shaped him with the fruit of self-control. So the self-control that we're describing here is not about reaching down into that inner part of yourself and grabbing some inner strength. It's not about just saying no or just bucking up and getting through. The self-control with what Christians are to cultivate is supernatural. It's a work of God's grace in us. I love it when Paul tells Titus that it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasures. It's not our sheer willpower. Paul also talks about the difference between willpower and self-control to the Corinthians. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? So run in a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So in verse 25 there, it's it's translated strict training, but the Greek word means self-control or self-rule. Everyone who competes goes through strict self-control. And self-control definitely is a need within our culture. I mean, in the last 40 years, there has been a huge increase in the number of 12-step groups dealing with a vast range of addictions. And it's identifying that people feel out of control in these areas of their life. Now, many people may not feel that kind of out of control, but just think about all the difficulties we face because we cannot control our tongue or our time or our thoughts, right? Paul is saying in this passage that he has self-control. He uses the example of an athlete. It was referring to the events such as the Olympics. And athletes put everything, their food, their exercise, their sleep, everything they do is put in proper place because of the prize that they're, they're shooting for, right? And we get it. We know all athletes don't train on Saturday to do what they're going to do. They, it's an all-day, 24-7 focus. Self-control refers to having our desires in the right place. For example, if say like you um, at work, you have to put together a really big event. Success is going to depend upon you doing the right things, often little things, in the right order. Like if you don't do the fundamental things first, you're going to have problems. Like if you sent out all the invites the day of an event, that is going to be wrongly ordered, right? It is going to lead to problems. And I love what Tim Keller says. He gives a a great definition of self-control. He says, self-control is the ability the Holy Spirit gives you to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. We all need that. This ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing is not done by reaching deep down inside and using your own willpower, but by tapping into the power of God's grace. It's a fruit of his spirit living within us. You know, most people... Think about self-control as an exercise of our will over our feelings. Like feelings need to stay in their place because we don't want them to take over, right? But that's not how God made us. It's misleading to think that self-control is about stuffing your feelings. He's not called us to be stoic. 
Self-control comes by feeling strongly and passionately, and you allow the right passions to help you order your life. Your feelings and your desires, they show what captivates your heart. So what gives you self-control? It's connected to this question. What is the greatest desire of your life? Is it to be a good employee, a good boss, a good friend, a good parent? I've heard an example that illustrates how desires can motivate us. Two guys were given a very boring task. They had to fold a paper for 12 hours a day, sitting in a small room with a window, and it looked at a brick wall, right? Um, the first guy says, I can't take this. And he, he hates the job, he hates the view, and he quits. Why? He's being paid minimum wage, right? Why would you do that? The other guy, he loves his job, even that view, the paper, everything about it. He's getting paid $2 million, right? So which one has more self-control? Which one has more willpower? The one guy that loves everything about it, it was because the joy set before him, his passion and his focus was ordered. So what desires are we focused on? What motivates us? As followers of Christ, we have many motivators, but what is the one ultimate desire that will order all the other desires in our hearts? We see here that Paul focused on this desire. Like an athlete, he's going for the crown, an imperishable crown. What is that crown? What's Paul going for? Is he talking about like we have to earn this crown, this, this heavenly prize? No, Paul's writing is very clear. We're not, he's not showing us that we have to earn our way into heaven. So why is he beating his body to get the prize? I mean, that sounds intense. Um, it sounds like sheer willpower and determination. But we get more understanding of the prize that Paul is going for in his other letters. To the Thessalonians, he shares how much he loves them and how they have become his crown, his joyous hope. When he sends a letter to the Philippians, he tells them how he lo- loves and longs for them, and they are his joy and crown. And then back in 1 Corinthians 9, where we were, in verse 23, Paul says the focus of his heart was, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. The passion in Paul's life is sharing the good news with people. And isn't that true of anything that's really good? You have to share it. I mean, it's just so much better when you get to share it than keeping it to yourself. Paul reorders his life because he doesn't want anything in his life to keep others from seeing the beauty of God. He wants to be that mature believer that we talked about in the beginning. Someone who reflects the trueness of who God is. And when we don't have those fundamentals in order, that is where our biggest temptations can happen. For example, let's say that someone has a really stressful job. Pressure is just really intense. And it's so much so that they have started to take some pills so that they can stay alert and they end up getting addicted. Well, what do we usually recommend when that happens? Well, we gotta, gotta go to rehab, right? You gotta get detoxed. You have to learn some ways of controlling your behavior to stop n- using those pills. But where is the pressure coming from? What is the thing that this person is worshiping? What is the desire in their heart? Are they thinking that they just have to be really good at their career? Because if you put career as the number one thing in your life, everything is gonna get out of order. The answer is not just going to to rehab or get detoxed or try to stay in control of your behaviors. You have to go deeper. Now, on a personal and professional basis, temptation and self-control are consistently an issue. And in this discussion, I would never want you to think I'm denying our need for self-discipline and saying no to temptation. I listen to TED Talks on motivation. 
I'm always trying to figure out how do I get my students, you know, I teach college, how do I get them more invested to do their homework, right? Um, but there are many, many great methods and strategies to use. But when I think about how I struggle with temptation, it always helps to begin with that lordship question. So for me, um, it is even though I would say that God is at the top of my priority list, um, at least in my head he is, the, the areas that I struggle with that can you, you know, most of them have been, well, a lot of them have been settled, but the ones that continue to trip me up, it usually has to do with my tendency to overwork. And I don't know if that's because I'm Minnesotan or, or that I'm mainly German, um, but, um, I have a double whammy on the tendency to overwork. And, but I do know that, that when there's a problem, my first tendency, I'm just gonna work harder. I'll go find another job. I'll make this happen. Um, and, I mean, that could be with my jobs, but it's also with my spiritual life. If there's something I feel like is not going right with me and God, it's, I know it's my fault. So, like, what do I do? I start working harder. I often don't pause to think through other options because my knee-jerk reaction, work harder, go fast, go hard. Um, and when I first take that step to look at the desires of my heart, it can be a little bit money because, again, I think that my desires are lined up. I mean, I so value and want to know God more. And I passionately want other people to know more about him. But in the midst of my overworking, something is disordered. It's not really a work problem. It is a lordship problem. Because what can I, what do I do when there is a problem? I pray, but then I just still work harder. How does that reflect the desires in my heart? Who am I trusting more, me or God? I often lean more on my own strength than his. And I... I just find it difficult to know how hard do I push? Where is my responsibility? Where is it God? And this tendency, uh, it just reflects my confusion on what are his expectations of me. But when we get down deeper, it is a lack of trusting in him. That he has really promised to be the one to carry the load and then I get to come alongside. That I don't always have to cover for my inadequacies. I don't always have to cover for the mistakes of other people. Who would have known? I have a control problem. And Russ, and when I told you, you can't mess that. You can't use that against me, right? I, we all, I have a control problem, okay? Um, but the outcome does not have to rest on my shoulders. God really has this. I don't have to jump into a problem and try to make things better through sheer willpower. Because if I do, I am going to miss out on receiving the abundance of grace that God promises to pour out. It was that overflowing fountain of chocolate kind of life that he has promised us. This grace that helps us to say no to things that are not the best for us. This temptation to overwork is an invitation to let God change me, let his spirit in me develop a kind of self-control that helps me to choose the important over the urgent thing. Sounds simple, but it hasn't been so easy for me. But temptations, I just really, we really want to be able to think about them as an opportunity for us to experience Jesus more personally. So as we close, I just want to reflect again upon Jesus. He was tempted like us, yet he didn't use sheer willpower to stay focused in his determination to go to the cross. As Jesus returned for the final time to go back to Jerusalem, he set his face like flint, knowing what it would entail. But how did he do this? Because he was self-disciplined? No. At the depths of pain and suffering on the cross, he kept his desires ordered. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus did all that work on the cross to the point that he got there. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So what was the joy 
set before Jesus? Was it a crown? Was it glory? Was it a relationship with the Father? No, because he already had those. The only possible thing left that Jesus didn't have was you or me. He didn't have us. The joy set before Jesus was us. You are the only thing he didn't have. And Jesus could have taken a shortcut to win the world, but he would have had to bend a knee to Satan. And instead, Jesus chose to come to earth to live as a man, to stand against Satan and defeated temptation. And if you are in Christ, if you've chosen him, you genuinely have the ability to defeat temptation because Jesus has enabled you. He has given you the means by the Holy Spirit to do it. So there's three things I would suggest to practice this week. Um, One of them could be if you're struggling with self-motivation or discipline, take some time to reassess your desires. Has Jesus slipped from being your number one desire to maybe number five or number 26? (laughs) Is there a lordship issue? Another one might be maybe you would benefit from just resting in the truth of how much God fought for you. The only thing Jesus didn't have was you. He fought for you. He continues to fight for you. He will always fight for you. And third, how can you participate in writing God's story in someone's life? So let's pray. Well, Lord, we are so grateful for just the perfection of who you are, how you so perfectly and thoroughly fought Satan and defeated him. We thank you that your kingdom has come into our lives. We thank you that you are continuing to write your story in our lives and our families' lives and our community's lives, Lord. We thank you for the goodness of who you are. We consistently want you more and more and more. We ask that you would change our lives and use us for the fullness of all the things you have planned. We love you so much in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.